0: I want to welcome uh, you here this morning. I want to welcome those uh, watching online and to our youth and others at the 11 o'clock service. Good morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Ryan Beatty. I'm the director of Belong and Grow, which is a department here at Bell Press that uh, helps people feel more connected to the church and hopefully grow uh, in their faith. And we're continuing this week with our summer series, Extraordinary. And we're looking at some of the characters in the Bible that you may not hear uh, much about, but who, through whom God did some amazing things. And this week, we are at Isaac. Okay, true confession, we're going to talk a lot about Isaac's dad, but by the end, hopefully we'll get to where, uh, we'll, we'll see how important Isaac is uh, for all of us. Well, when my uh, 11-year-old daughter, Megan, uh, who's, who was when she was three, we went camping with some friends, and we went off to look for uh, this beach. And as we were crossing the last parking lot to to get there, uh, my wife Christy and I looked over, and we saw her sort of like angling over towards one of those big parking lot puddles that are usually kind of long, right? And we could see clearly what she was thinking. Didn't seem to matter that she was in sandals and shorts and a T-shirt, right? So Christy said something to her like, hey, please do not jump in that puddle. We don't have a change of clothes for you. You will be miserable. And Megan stopped. She looked at the puddle. She looked at us and said, a cat's got to do what a cat's got to do, and jumped right into the puddle. And it was like a great jump. Both feet, she nailed the landing, and she was soaked and miserable, which meant that I was eventually soaked and miserable, carrying her back on my shoulders to our campsite, right? And it's funny now, right, eight years later, but it's also a humorous snapshot of the human heart. A cat's got to do what a cat's got to do. We're all creatures of desires. And whether we want to admit it or not, our hearts tend to lead us. Over the last 15 to 20 years, science has even begun to validate this. What religions, philosophers, country music, and John Mayer have been telling us for thousands of years, we are led by our hearts. For a long time, uh, science said uh, that only the brain was involved in our emotions. But we know now that the heart actually sends more signals to the brain that the brain sends back to the heart. The heart plays a critical role in our emotions. When we're stressed or angry or frustrated, our heart rhythms become erratic, which sends negative signals to the brain and we experience those as stressful negative emotions. On the other hand, when we experience things like love or care, compassion, the rhythms of our heart are more like gentle rolling hills and it creates this warm feeling actually right around the area of our heart. And of course, all this is involved in more than just like the passing emotions of love or anger, frustration, comfort. Our hearts are deeply involved in those things that exert kind of a gravitational pull on the trajectory of our lives. The big passions, romantic relationships, marriages, families, bosses, mentors, enemies, frenemies, jobs, hobbies, sports, athletics. What are those things in your life that if they went away, you might feel like your life was falling apart. Some of you may know the name Ronda Rousey. She is a mixed martial artist, an MMA fighter whose art was basically never losing. Uh, Of her first 14 fights, only two went past the first round. And of those other 12, uh, the majority of them lasted less than a minute. The world said that she could not be beaten, but about three years ago, in front of 56,000 fans, the biggest MMA fight ever, she lost, it happened. And her world fell apart. Listen to what she said about those moments right after, after the loss. Honestly, my thought in the medical room, I was sitting in the corner and was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? Literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a blank about me anymore without this. What am I anymore if I'm not this. Every human being lives for something, something that captures our imaginations, that becomes the fundamental hope and identity of our heart. The Bible gives us a term for those things that hold this kind of power over our hearts, over our sense of identity and purpose. They're called idols. Now, when you hear that term, you might think of little religious statues or Kelly Clarkson. But the Bible is clear that the most challenging idols are those things and people that should be close to our heart, that really are good gifts from God. About 400 years after Jesus lived, Augustine, a Christian, wrote that sin and idolatry were really issues of what he called disordered loves, disordered loves in our hearts. Augustine believed that we were shaped much more by what we love than by what we believed or even did. And he said there was an order, like a prioritization of the loves in our heart. And problems always come when those things get out of whack, get out of order, particularly if we put anything in the center or at the top of the list besides God. Here's here's what he said. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. What lives in the center of our heart matters. No one understands this more clearly than God. Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart for everything. Everything you do flows from it. We see it with Jesus in his interactions with people. He's always going after what's at the center of their heart. Even his very first question in the Gospel of John, there's two disciples that have turned and started to follow him, and Jesus looks at them and asks them, what do you want? Not what do you believe or what do you know, but what do you want? Another way to say that might have been, what's in your hearts? And then we see poignantly towards the end of his life on earth, Jesus confronts Peter, who had betrayed him, this, this disciple that he said he was going to build his church on, and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And I want to argue that it's these kinds of penetrating questions that get to the heart of your relationship with God. What do you want? Do you love me? Well, this morning, we're going to parachute down right into uh, the climax of the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God confronts Abraham about Isaac. Isaac. And it's an incredibly famous and unsettling story. It's got lots of layers of meaning. But I'm going to ask that as we look at the story, as we follow Abraham and Isaac up the mountain, that you pay attention to what the Holy Spirit may want to kind of tug on in your heart. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would help us and lead us into truth. So that's my prayer for us in this room, that that would happen now. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Okay, quick review on who Abraham is. He's one of the three patriarchs, the great fathers of our faith. Uh, the big three world religions, right, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all claim him as the father of their faith. Back in Genesis 12, uh, God calls Abraham. He calls him to a pretty big task that costs him a lot. He asks him to leave his home, his friends, most of his people, and to set off to a land that he's never been to, but, and that God will show him after he goes. God puts a big call on Abraham's life. He promises to make his name great and says his descendants will be a great nation that will outnumber the stars and eventually be a blessing to the whole whole earth. So over the years of following God's commands, often in imperfect ways, he, he does become a very wealthy, powerful patriarch. He's married to Sarah. But there is one super important thing that Abraham and Sarah long for but can't seem to get, and that is a son. A son in Abraham's day was everything. It meant the family's wealth and power would stay in the family bloodline and their household would continue. Eventually, God does promise a biological son to them, but they get impatient. They take matters into their own hands. We can't quite unpack all that today, but again, God repeats. He comes to Abraham and says that he will be a great nation and it will happen through a son with his wife, Sarah. And it does. Finally, Isaac is born, even though they are really old. Imagine like your grandma and grandpa at 10, 20 years, and now they're having a baby. That's kind of what happens here. And then several years later, uh, we arrive at this moment. Back to verse 1. He, God, said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, so once again, God is asking Abraham, and now Isaac, to get up and go to a place he's going to show him. But this time, it's with this devastating command. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go. Can you imagine the horror and the confusion for Abraham? Wait, we waited all of these years for a son, a son that you said was supposed to be a blessing to the whole earth, and now you want me to kill him. It's the traditional understanding of the story is that uh, following God requires radical faith and tests, right? Uh, Abraham is held up as this preeminent example of trusting God because of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Now, radical faith is great, and clearly Abraham has this kind of faith. But that explanation is, is first a little iffy. Because if that's the case, does that mean that God condones killing kids? And if he does... What else could people try and justify as tests of faith in God? And secondly, that traditional explanation ignores the very important historical context that Abraham is living in and that God is working through. To our mostly Western, highly individualistic minds, we're living on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, it is tough to understand this command. But what about Abraham? What if for Abraham the shock wasn't the actual request to kill his son, but rather that God would request that about Isaac, who he had made all these specific promises about this identity that he'd given to. Again, nobody had longed for a son the way that Abraham and Sarah did. In theirs and other ancient civilizations, which were much more communal and focused on family, the oldest son would inherit almost all of the family's wealth and prominence, and this is how a family would maintain their power in society. In our time, families typically split up, siblings go to different, different places, but in Abraham's time, families stuck together under the provision and the protection of a patriarch, and eventually that patriarch's heir. This is how they kept their place in society. And this is what was called the cultural law of primogeniture. Ten points if you can get primogeniture into a work conversation this week. However, Abraham also knew that every family owed a debt because of sin, and that the payment required was the firstborn son. Now, this could be avoided by making sacrifices, by working in the tabernacle, but Abraham and every family knew that there was a debt of sin, and the payment was the firstborn son, the greatest thing you could ask of a family in this cultural time and place. Now, if you think that primogeniture sounds kind of unfair, uh, particularly towards... Uh, women, don't worry, God agrees with you. He works to undermine primogeniture over and over again in the Old Testament, opting to work with uh, often the younger siblings. But he does work through culture sometimes, and I think he's doing it here. And again, if the point of the story was simply to test Abraham's faith, Abraham could have just taken a knife, gone into Isaac's tent, and killed him. But most commentators don't think Abraham would have done that, because that would have been murder, and would have gone against everything that he believed about God. So as challenging and horrific as it still was, Abraham understood that God was calling in the debt that he and every other family owed because of sin. Uh, As Pastor Tim Keller points out, God had laid out this symbolic system of sacrifice that made sense within this man-made law of primogeniture, and he did it in order to say something significant to these ancient cultures in a way they'd understand. And so if God's command to offer up his firstborn son it doesn't make any sense to us, we must understand that Abraham knew what God was asking. Abraham knew that all human beings fail to live according to God's law of justice, that we live self-centered lives, that's why there's so many messes in the world. And a God of justice cannot overlook that, and Abraham understood this. But Abraham also knew God as a God of mercy, And so as conflicted and as in shock as he must have been, we can continue reading in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. What is it that allows Abraham to to go up that mountain, right? He's facing the justice of God, but believing in the mercy and grace of God. Well, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we get a glimpse of what's in Abraham's mind. It says this in Hebrews eleven seventeen: By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive his son Isaac back from death. Abraham trusted in God's grace and mercy even as he faced his justice. He believed that if God allowed Isaac to be given up as a sacrifice, that he would raise him from the dead. And we see this in when he talks to his servants when he says, we will come back to you. And then when Isaac asks about the offering, he says, God himself will provide. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Okay, so if we can say that the request to sacrifice the son made sense to Abraham, even if it seems insane to us, and even if we can say that Abraham had put faith in a God of justice to show mercy, we're still left asking why put him through all of this? And that takes us back to Isaac and to the heart. Abraham had shown incredible faith in God for many years. But with his beloved son Isaac here now, he was at risk of making Isaac an idol. The, the angel, when he stops Abraham, he says, Now that I know, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son. This word fear here doesn't really mean afraid the way that we would use it. A a, a better, more biblical understanding here would be wholehearted commitment to God. As one commentator put it, fear here describes a loving and joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of God. What God is saying here is, now I know that you love me more than anything in the world. This is what fear of God means. Again, God has put a huge call on Abraham's life to do amazing things. And he knows that if he doesn't intervene... God is at, Abraham is at risk of coming to love Isaac more than anything else in the world. This is idolatry. And idolatry always leads to some sort of destruction, both for Abraham and for Isaac. And the same is true for us. God put Abraham in a situation where Abraham had to confront his disordered love and put God back at the center of his heart. And here's the thing for Isaac. Isaac. Isaac was never going to be able to live up to all of the expectations, hold up under all of the pressure of being Abraham and Sarah's everything. When God set Isaac free from that carefully constructed pile of wood, he set him free in another critical way. He set him free from being their ultimate everything. As beloved as Isaacs of the world are in our lives, as much joy, security, and sense of purpose that they can bring they will eventually let you down and we will eventually fail them on this side of heaven right the world will eventually take them away so whatever your Isaac is he needs you to put him in second place he's better off when god is first you're a better father mother wife husband sister brother friend coworker boss neighbor student teammate moneymaker, identity, and title holder when Jesus is first. If we make work, for example, and the pursuit of titles and financial success are idle, then we risk viewing people as expendable. We'll be prone to dehumanize them and use them as stepping stones on the ladder of our success, rather than as bearers of God's image whom he deeply loves. Or we risk functionally sacrificing our kids on the altar of long hours as we spend less and less time with them and make the excuse that we're actually doing it for them, when instead it may be about our own egos, identities, sense of accomplishment, security. If we make our kids our idol, we risk putting too much pressure on them and unintentionally smothering them as our identities sort of get wrapped up in their identities and their well-being at school, sports, activities, whatever it is. This is a big one for me, by the way, this week that God challenged me on. What is it for you? Because here's what I believe to be true. God has an incredible call on your life. And only you and he can make that happen. But he needs your heart first. He needs it for the sake of you and for the sake of your Isaacs. And if you feel like, And I don't know how to start tackling this. You know, we have staff and trained volunteers who would love to meet with you, pray with you, talk about that. Um, But honestly, though, the best thing to do is to start where Abraham did. To hear the call from God, to follow Abraham and Isaac up that mountain. Tradition holds that it's the same hills, the hills of Moriah around Jerusalem, where Jesus, later, a beloved son, would carry wood up that mountain as well. And it's on that hill that Jesus willingly gave his life so that we could experience freedom, wholeness, and healing. And so my encouragement to you is to go to the cross with those idols. Go with those things that you have made ultimate, which cannot hold up under that weight. And reflect on both the justice and the mercy of God. And my prayer for you is that as you do that, as you reflect on that, you'll be able to say, back to God something like what God said to Abraham. God, now I know that you love me, for you did not withhold your son, your only son, Jesus, whom you love from me. Let's pray. God, you are relentlessly after our hearts, and that is good news. But would you give us the courage, the tools, the resources, the people, uh, to get in alignment with you. In other words, you bring healing and hope where it's needed. God, we want to follow you, serve you, and to live in the freedom that you brought through your son, Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen.